This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Momwell Podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome New York Times bestselling author Emily Oster to the show. For those of you who don't know her, Emily Oster is a parent of two and a professor of economics at Brown University. She holds a PhD in economics from Harvard. And when she entered parenthood, she was inspired to utilize her skills in data translation to analyze data around pregnancy and parenting. Since then, she's put out books like Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm that is analyzing all of the different research that is out there on various pregnancy and parenting topics and presents all the information in a very factual way to empower parents to make their own informed decisions. Emily opens up the introduction of Expecting Better, talking about how there were many recommendations made to her throughout her first pregnancy without any real data or evidence to back them up. And as many of you know, when you're pregnant or enter parenthood, there is no shortage of advice and recommendations that people offer up. But it can become extra confusing because often the advice and the suggestions that we are getting can be in contradiction to each other leaving us feeling anxious and often grappling with what the right decision is for us. Emily previously joined us on episode 84 to talk through some of the data on the various hot button topics that come up in pregnancy and the early postpartum stages. But today I've asked Emily to come back and join us to talk about the skill of decision-making itself. Why is it that we struggle with making parenting decisions? And what role does the medical field or our doctors play in empowering our decision-making or prohibiting it? How do we go about making decisions in ways that we're using discretion instead of setting concrete black or white rules? And how do we ultimately begin to gain confidence in our decision-making abilities? Gathering and analyzing data in order to make informed decisions is one of the key skills that Emily has developed through her education and background. And she joins us today to help empower us to learn how to make our own decisions in parenting with confidence. Let's hear my conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Emily Oster. Hey friends, I have some really exciting news to share. MomWell is partnering with researchers from University of Connecticut and University of Toronto to learn more about the experiences of MomWell listeners like you. We want to know more about the value we bring to you as you navigate the challenges of motherhood. We also want to hear your ideas about how we can better help you. If you take part in this research study, you'll be asked to complete an online survey to help us learn how to make MomWell even better in the future. We would love to hear from those of you who have been a part of our community for months or years, and also those who are brand new to MomWell. Head to momwell.com slash study slash podcast to learn more about this research study and to see if you're eligible. That's momwell.com slash study slash podcast. In the meantime, I want you to know that you're not alone and you're doing a great job. Welcome to the MomWell podcast, where we're committed to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host, registered psychotherapist and founder of MomWell, Erica Jossa. At MomWell, we know that motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. We're committed to providing you with knowledge, tools, and support to navigate the challenges of motherhood. Our mission is to put moms back on the priority list and empower them to create a mental wellness toolbox free from judgment, fear, and shame. 
On the show, we'll be discussing topics such as postpartum depression, identity loss, the mental load of motherhood, and more. We'll be joined by experts, moms, and professionals who can offer advice, practical tips, relatable stories, and honest conversations. Here at MomWall, we believe that when a mom is well, a baby is well. So join us as we discuss the topics that matter to you with experts who get it. Together, we can redefine motherhood and change the way moms are treated. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again today. So excited to have you back and welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me back. It's such a treat. I'm excited to get to chat. I know that we had you on last time to dive into some of the hot button topic areas that I'm sure you get asked all the time on social I see or I get your newsletter as well, like the really common sort of big pain points that parents want to have the like full information around or struggle with a lot. But in between that and now, a big conversation has broken out in my community about decision making more broadly. And while I I wish we could all have a an Emily Oster in our pockets, which actually is sort of what your books are for people. But in the day-to-day decision-making app, people really struggle. So I'm excited to jump into it and dive into this topic together today. I'm curious, though, before diving in, how have you been? I know that you had released your third book since I saw you last. Are, Are you got projects on the go or how are you doing? I'm good. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on. I think the most exciting is we're really sort of Imagining Parent Data, which is the newsletter, as this new sort of bigger resource. And so we actually just, more or less just this morning when I'm talking to you, relaunched the website in a way that I think will be more accessible for people to have like the hundreds of things that I have written about pregnancy and parenting sort of at their fingertips. So I'm just really excited about the possibilities of providing not just the books, but then kind of more to fill in the questions that you have that you cannot answer in a 350-page book because my books would be like 9,000 pages mm-hmm. long if I dealt with every like skincare question that I get. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is to have the website kind of fill in in those places. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about where we're going next. It's all good. And like you're here with us on launch day. Thank you. Oh my goodness. I can imagine just how crazy all the things are going on today. It's a soft launch situation. <laughs> yeah. No, I appreciate that. In Expecting Better and how you this platform came to be, generally speaking, was you coming to motherhood, parenthood, and having all of these questions, like getting recommendations and suggestions from doctors, sort of being instructed and told, I guess, for lack of a better word, instructed to do things. And having these questions and reflective critical moments of like, but why? Why do I need to do these things? And I feel like this is a skill. This is an area where so many of us struggle. And in the opening, you talked about like decision-making theory and all of this. I don't know if it's like from your training and that's a part of like the economics work that you do and just the sort of critical, rational way that you think through decision-making. But like we are not empowered, I feel like as women to make our own decisions in a lot of cases. So then when we enter motherhood and we have a bajillion decisions to make for ourselves, It's incredibly overwhelming. Yes. Yes to all of that. So to sort of start with kind of where I come into this, economics is really, it's about data. And I talk a lot about data, but it's also about decisions. And most of what we do uh, when we teach economics is try to teach people basically structures for decision-making and try to teach them how they can combine, you know, data and constraints, preferences and constraints 
to try to make good decisions. And most of the time that involves some version of like weighing costs and benefits. That's like the standard economics, like there's costs and benefits, you know, you're effectively your kind of pro-con list. And I think when you say that, people sort of understand that. They understand when I make a decision, I'm going to weigh, you know, the benefit of doing something to the benefit of doing something else. But we don't actually spend a lot of time either in economics or just in general in life helping people with how they can make that decision, mm-hmm. right? We have this idea that there could be pluses and minuses, and maybe you could make them into a list. But how do you actually translate that idea that every decision has pluses and minuses? How do you translate it into actually choosing one option? And sometimes that doesn't matter. Sometimes, you know, it's a tuna sandwich or a cheese sandwich. And at the end of the day, who cares? I mean, you probably don't need a list for that. But there are a lot of choices once you become a parent in particular, where like it is important, it does feel important. And we can make our pro and con list all day long. But one of the things you'll see about that pro and con list, and I think this is the really hard part, is that on the pro and con list, any given choice has both pros and cons. I think that's the core of what's hard about these decisions is that none of them is perfect. Yeah. Very rarely do you sit down to write a pro and con list and be like, this option has only pros and the other option has only cons. So obviously I should do this because if it were so obvious, you wouldn't need to be writing down a complicated list. Right. It is inherent in this that there's some conflict and some ways in which by choosing one thing, you're giving up some positive things about the other. And much of what I try to do in my writing, and I've done, I think, more and more over time as I've kind of become a parent and also as your kids get older, some of these decisions become more complicated in these ways, like less obvious. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how can we wrap around those pro and cons lists some kind of structure that would let you sort of use that input and move from sort of what's my question to like, what's my solution, rather than do what I think is pretty common for many of us in these hard decisions, which is just sort of like sit on them and allow them to fester. And eventually they're sort of made for us because like we've failed to do any active decision making. Yeah, there is no option in which it's 100% I'm all in in this direction often, like especially in parenting when there is like an array of different directions that we can go in, right? And when I work with moms, primarily people, generally speaking, but primarily moms, what I find is some themes about why we struggle with decision making that come up. Like, for example, If we live in a family in which our parents didn't empower us to sort of problem solve and think through our own decision making and sort of told us what our decision should be or, you know, career paths or who we should and shouldn't date or however that plays out, we really didn't learn to walk through those critical steps on our own. Others have vocalized that their faith and sort of the maybe the gender norms and the roles that they're in play a big role in what they feel like they should do and the decisions that they should make. And so I just feel like there's a lot of interesting layers here where it wasn't really until I got to motherhood that I was like, didn't realize how much I was indecisive and didn't really have that critical thinking through to weigh the pros and cons up until that point. And for many others, I think decisions are kind of made for us a lot of the time. It's interesting because In my books and in Expecting Better in particular, I spend, you know, some time kind of complaining about not so much individual doctors, but like the medical establishment and this idea that like, 
you're supposed to do X or this is the recommended thing because you're this age and saying, let's take a step back. We actually need to evaluate that decision may not be the right thing for everybody. I mean, that's a cornerstone of a lot of my approach. When I talk to doctors about this stuff, sometimes they will say, when patients come to me, they want me to tell them what to do. Mm. And actually, some of the doctors I find most thoughtful will say, what's really hard about my job is that people want to be told what to do. That when they come in, they want me to tell them, this is the test you should have. This is the you know, birthing approach you should take. You know, They want to be told they should have a C-section or they shouldn't. And actually, what the doctor wants is to engage in active decision-making, is to recognize that different people will make this differently and that their job is to help people make the best decisions for them. But there is this sense sometimes where we just, it's like, just tell me what to do. Like, decision is hard. I don't want to make it. I don't be responsible for it. I don't want to feel like I've made an active choice. I just want someone to tell me what to do. There's a bunch of things behind that, but I think one of them as you point out, is that it isn't a way in which we're trained. Mm -hmm. We are not often trained either by our parents or by school to make thoughtful decisions, which could turn out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that every time we make a choice, it may ex post turn out to not be the right choice. And that's just part of it. And all you can guarantee is that you've made the choice in kind of the ex-ante right way, that you've made it thoughtfully. You can't guarantee that the choice will be right. And that's just a really hard thing to live with. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying about the expert role because like, I get this a lot when we're in therapy and we're client-centered, you know, and the client has the answer and a lot of like solution-focused therapies as well. Like the client has the answer and you sort of work them through. And sometimes people come in, they're like, but you did the schooling for this. Like, what? tell it to me straight, you know? And so I do think that there is absolutely a desire for like, in your expert opinion, if this were you, what would you do in this situation kind of conversation? But then I also think that there is this like medical gaslighting, like I know better than you sort of decision making that can go on in the medical practice and otherwise where we get like medical gaslighting or the hystericalizing of women. And so as you had said in the book, and as we talk about a lot on the platform, this is going to be the most sort of intimate relationship we have with like the medical system or experts or sort of reevaluating our boundaries than we will probably at any other time in life because we're learning an entirely new role. And so not feeling equipped or feeling already so uncertain and anxious in our new role as a new parent, relying on experts when sometimes we don't know maybe how to fact check their information even or how to feel good in that decision. I don't know. It's a tricky time for people. It's tricky. And I think it's so key to find providers in these spaces who you not just trust, but connect with in terms of how you want to be approaching decisions. People ask me, you know, like, how do I pick a pediatrician? It's like a common question. Like, what should I be looking for in my Mm. pediatrician? I think the answer is like, you should be looking for someone who you feel comfortable bringing your crazy to. Whatever is your brand of that and whatever is your approach to decision-making, you should pick somebody that you feel like you can have those conversations with honestly. Because I do think the biggest issue in both the pregnancy space and in the parenting you know, space in terms of interactions with doctors is that people feel ill-equipped to have the conversation. They feel unprepared. And then when they get there, they aren't able to ask the questions. There isn't enough time to do it. They aren't 
ready with the questions that they want. They're nervous. They're nervous about the interaction. Mm -hmm. That is a terrible recipe for making good decisions. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what the decision is, it is sprung on you. You don't have any background. And then you don't feel like you can ask the questions that you have. There's absolutely no way you'll get to a good decision. Mm. And I see a big piece of my role especially in pregnancy, and I, my role, I mean the role of, the, of my books, is to give people the first piece of that. Like, hey, these are the decisions you're going to be asked to make. Here's a little bit of information, and here's some questions that you would want to ask. And then it's your job to go and find a provider that's going to be open to hearing those questions. And I think there are a lot of them. There are people where, you know, when you ask a question, the answer is, you, why are you asking me so many questions? And that's not a great provider reaction. That's not a great provider relationship. But I think there are many more people who'd be very happy to have those conversations and help you make those decisions. But you got to do some homework first. You got to be sort of ready for the idea of the decision, ready for what you're going to need to think about. Want to get smarter about your health, but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics. But taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mealtime with kids can be stressful. But with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. As we're talking about it, it's making me think about like rules versus how you lay out information in your books. Because we enter in as a new parent and it's like, baby must do this and they must do that. And this is the, you must not drink this much amount of alcohol or any alcohol in pregnancy, you must not do this, all the things. And they're like presented as though they're hard and fast rules. But we open this conversation with saying that zero decisions are 100% black and white, right? And so 
when being handed a blanket set of rules and being told that this is what you must do in order to parent effectively, being a first-time parent who wants to like rise to that occasion, it can become very black and white. It can become very like, I'm either doing it 100% or I'm not. Do you find that that's, <laughs> that that happens in your community? I do find that that happens. I mean, I think this is the most important thing that you will do, right? It's the thing that's the most important to people is raising their kids and doing a good job. And they want to do all of the things that they're told are sort of optimal for making that happen. And one of the things that I think is pretty common to run into is the recognition you actually can't do it. That like it's literally in many cases impossible Hmm. to do all of the things that you're asked to do. And whether that's like it's impossible to breastfeed or whether that's, you know, my kid will not sleep on their own in the crib on their back. And so you've told me not to have them sleep in my bed or you've told me, you know, that they have to sleep in this way, but that's impossible. And you've told me it's also important for me to be well rested. Well, now you've stacked up a whole set of things, which literally I can't do. Like, yeah, not like I don't want to. It's not if I tried harder. It's like literally these things are impossible. Mm -hmm. And that leaves people feeling defeated and it leaves them with a very poor foundation on which to decide what to actually do. Right. Because if you gave them more information and you said, okay, the best thing is this. But, you know, if you can't do this, here's the kind of ranking of the things that, you know, are fine and the things that are like really not fine. Instead, we've just told them, here's the best thing and everything else is garbage. Mm -hmm. And then you just end up feeling as a parent, like, well, I don't really know what to do. I might as well just do whatever. And anyway, I'm a terrible garbage parent to begin with. And I think that feeling of defeat, especially when you have a small baby and you are also very tired, is really challenging. And I think what we do is some of these choices then go underground. Like, so if I feel shame that I, you know, can't breastfeed and breast is best and this feels like a very strong rule until you're two years old, you know, you should breastfeed. And yet we have no paid care and mothers are pumping and going back to work and whatever. And we make these recommendations when we can't possibly, as you said, like I've even had mothers come forward in my audience and said, like, I had a double mastectomy and I still have guilt about not being able to breastfeed my child. Like I I literally can't possibly and people still ask me and, you know, so I think that what happens as a result, it's kind of like. I think you actually even make this comparison in your book where we just like teach abstinence, but people are going to have sex anyway. So like we're not teaching them any of the like effective steps in between about how to actually then weigh the risks of the backup plan Bs because the ideals very rarely, if ever, go as we expect that they should. Yeah. And in the case of breastfeeding, you know, if you look at what people say they're going to do and then what they do. A very large share of people say, even in the U.S., say, I'm going to exclusively breastfeed until my kid is one or two or whatever is is the goal. But the reality is that almost everybody ends up doing some combo feeding. Not everybody, but like a huge share, far larger share of people end up doing some version of breastfeeding plus formula plus pumping, you know, in some combination than you know, exclusively breastfeed from the breast for that full time period. That's just the reality. Mm -hmm. And what that means is many people who intended to sort of feed in one way ended up feeding in another way. And we have almost no information, just like practical information about like, what is the right way to combine those? Mm 
Mm. You know, people ask me, like, is it better to give them half and half formula and breast milk? Is it better to do one bottle a day of formula? Is it better to combine the pumping milk in this way? Is it actually a lot of like interesting practical questions about both, you know, from a health standpoint, but there it doesn't matter too much, I think, in the data. But even from a practical standpoint, like, What's the best way to rotate out my frozen milk in in different complicated ways? We could be helping people with that, but we're not because we're spending all our time telling them, like, just try to breastfeed a little bit more and that's best. Instead of saying, hey, the reality is like a lot of people are going to end up doing this in, in a variety of different ways. If you get there, like here are some ways that, you know, work for other people or here's some of what the data says. And I don't think we're pursuing that because of this sort of obsession with kind of one particular path. Mm-hmm. And that is to the detriment of many people. Mm-hmm. Where we've got sort of decisions that feel like they're polar opposite one another, you know, on opposite ends of the spectrum, where really maybe the majority of parents fall somewhere more in the middle with a uh, dipping into a balance of each of the approaches and no real information or, or programs to support, like, I hear a lot about like breastfeeding classes or like combo feeding classes or how to feed your infant when you're going back to work and all you have is breast is best messaging when you're practically having to reintegrate back into work and figure out ways to pump and things. (laughs) Okay, then I want to go on a side tangent of like (laughs) setting these rules and it's all these like white men in boardrooms or something takes me down a whole other tangent. But no, I mean, it's just... Black and white messaging doesn't work for most public health. And I'm not sure why it is so appealing. I mean, there's like a million different examples of this, not just in parenting and everything else. You know, the advice we give people about food, about diet, the advice that we give people about, you know, like cancer screening, the advice we give people about even smoking, like all of these things like are very... You just go very, very black and white without kind of helping people think about how to sort of manage steps in the direction of maybe what you think is the best outcome and manage it in a way that's kind of feasible for them. The actual messaging mostly often just makes people feel like they failed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk to me about this like rules versus discretion piece, because I feel like as moms, we don't trust ourselves. And I think that there's a lot of reasons why that is. A lot of the messaging is kind of that we shouldn't, like that we should look to others to make decisions. And so when trying to find those shades of gray, when trying to like flex those muscles and use our discretion, I don't know that we've been empowered to do that often. I think that's right. We haven't given people the sort of empowering message that you can make these choices in a way that works for you. And the result of that is, in my view, two problems. One is a kind of over-reliance on experts. And I say this as someone whose entire business model is saying that I'm an expert in things um, and being an expert in data. But I do think one of the things we try to do in my space is to tell people, you know, here's the data, the decision is yours. A hundred percent. Yeah, I may think I'm an expert. I'm not an expert in what you should do. I'm an expert in what science says about the data, the data. Yeah. So I think that's kind of one thing that happens is is people sort of glom on to like one person's approach. But the other thing that happens when we don't trust ourselves is we can be so quickly pulled around by what other people do and by other people's judgment. 
by the idea that, you know, somebody else doesn't think I'm doing a good job. Hmm. You know, and that kind of second guessing of our choices, the moment where, you know, you're with your kid at the park and you're giving them a squeezy pouch and someone says, oh, did you know that you know, squeezy pouches lead to childhood obesity or whatever p- people tell you that, you know, that moment of like, oh my gosh, like maybe I am doing the wrong thing. That's so common. Mm. And it is so challenging to our you know sense of doing a good job. And I do think that part of our reaction to that is that we are not comfortable with decision-making because I think if you are comfortable with the decision-making that you have made, you're comfortable with, you know, having thought through your choices and made the choices that work best for your family, then that person's still a jerk. But your reaction is going to be, wow, you're being a jerk rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And the more we can get our parenting experiences to be like, I feel like I'm doing this right. And when someone tells me that I'm doing it wrong, it's their problem, not my problem. I think the more happy we will be in the experiences that we're having, which is kind of the point, right? I mean, this stuff is hard, but like we want to be enjoying it at least some of the time and feel like confident. I mean, I think that's, I don't know, that's my goal some of the time. Mm -hmm. I never feel confident, but I would like to feel confident more (laughs) more of the time. I know. That was where I was going to go next. Like, how do we feel confident? I think there's a couple of different ways. And, And I will say, you are certainly an expert in the field, but it is a different type than the, you know, co-sleeping with your baby and being in proximity and baby wearing is the way to build a bond. Like that is prescriptive, right? Like what your work does is empower with the information and say, have at it. Like you're all going to make a different, you know, conclusion and summary for yourself and apply this differently for your own situation. And that's a really different approach than being prescriptive, which I feel like when we get into these polarized different camps of different types of parenting philosophies and things, we really live in the space where this is how you must and these are the shoulds. And and if you don't, I mean, I think the piece of that that resonates just to, to add on to that is yeah. when we're in the space of like, this is how you must or this is how you should to be in this group, it's like, if I don't do it, now I'm like socially ostracized from the group, yeah. right? Like there's such a pull to be like, I want to be this kind of parent, the attachment parent, the non-attachment parent. Nobody wants to be that kind. I don't know what are the kinds, but like there's such a pull to be this in the group. And mm-hmm. that makes it hard to make decisions independently sometimes. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. 
That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed. But the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Asherina Reem's Psyched Mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create All the Rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code RAGE20. That's momwell.com slash rage, code RAGE20. I liken the interaction that you were describing of like witnessing either somebody else parent differently or somebody sort of correcting you in a situation or saying, oh, did you know, and you shouldn't do that or whatever, as them sort of trying to hand their value set to you, like I value X, Y, and Z, and I really value convenience and I will pack those pouches all day long. I really don't care, you know? And so you're like three kids later and whatever, (laughs) they lick the floor and I don't care anymore. So it's their values and what they feel is right. And they're trying to like sort of hand that over. And I sort of have a choice in that moment to say, is this mine? Like, does this really align with my values? Is this something that is important to me? But I'm sure that there are other layers to this that go into making confident decisions. So what other layers, like obviously the way that you lay out the actual data for people, like this is not aligned with any one camp and is not sort of meant to be persuasive in any way. Like this is just the data says what the data says, right? So being able to consult sources like yours and really know the pros and cons. So what I really like about what you said is that when somebody questions our parenting in some public forum or private forum, it is easy for it to read as, you know, this person is trying to hand me facts. And it's often framed like that. Like that pouch is bad for blah, blah, blah reason, which is framed like a fact or, you know, breastfeeding is important for this fact based reason. But I think you're right. In almost every one of those situations, what they are trying to hand you is their values, Mm -hmm. is not a fact. It is their values. And that, I mean, I'm going to use this because I think that's such a nice way to frame why you shouldn't care. Mm -hmm. Because although if somebody handed you actual facts in a world in which someone was giving you an actual fact, like that could be actionable, maybe you'd want to listen to it. Mm -hmm. But when somebody gives you their values, There's really no particular imperative to listen to that person's values. And there are cases in which we do want to listen to that, right? There are cases in which, you know, our best friend says like, hey, here's what really worked for me. And like, you know, here's a kind of value that my family lives by and that like might help you. And I can easily see 
taking that on and saying, you know, is this a value that I share and how might it shape my experience? But when we get that from people who are not close to us, who beats values, we don't particularly have any reason to think we share, then they're just, yeah, it's just nothing. That's just noise in just sort of noise, mm-hmm. noise in the, in the world. And then I think we can sort of come back to our own question or like, okay, well, if I'm not going to make those decisions based on what, you know, people that I see at the park are doing, how do I make those decisions? And I think that's where interacting with evidence that's useful is helpful. And that's what I try to provide. And then we're sort of stepping back. And actually, when we have these big decisions, you know, things like how long am I going to breastfeed or what kind of childcare am I going to engage or I'm going to stay home with my kids, whatever, you know, those big decisions are, that we stop and try to give those decisions the time that they need. I think often in these choices, we are giving the decisions simultaneously too much attention by effectively thinking about them all the time Mm -hmm. and constantly replaying them in our head and also too little attention because we don't take the moments to sit and say, you know, what are really the choices that I have? What are the actual options that I could make work? How would that work with my life? How would that serve my preferences? What would the evidence say? And now with all that information, let me make this choice. Let me just make the choice and then try to move forward with it. Mm-hmm. We're rarely taking that kind of deliberate approach to this. And it does take time, but I'm not sure it takes more time than we're using running through the decisions at every moment in our heads. Mm-hmm. I think it's like your to-do list and it's going to ruminate and it's going to come back up until you just write that thing down and organize what's a priority and what is not. Yes. In the same way, I think, until you sit and put the pros and cons out, really structure your thoughts, will you be able to kind of let go of that rumination? And I'm writing right now. I just am finishing the revisions for my manuscript to submit it. And one of the things that I highlight when this we're being handed these values over is that often because we all are walking around feeling so unsteady and unsure in our own decisions, we often feel the need to prove our rightness so that we know we're confident in our decision-making sometimes, right? Yes. And so I think that like when someone's trying to hand the value over or when we see maybe like I've been the mom trying to, you know, win a Facebook group thread (laughs) of making my point or whatever in those early years, that we're trying to convince ourselves of our confidence and our sturdiness sometimes as much as we are others. And it's tricky. It's hard. I think one of the ways I put it is like, I want my decision to be not just right for me, but so right that it's right for everyone. And that's like what I'm trying to do is like prove that I'm the I'm the rightest. And that's just so tempting. And even, you know, it's it's interesting, even in kind of in writing my sort of crib sheet, which is kind of the book that I have that sort of focuses on little kid parenting. Mm-hmm. I think before that, I was actually like way more likely to I'm not sure I would describe it as boss other people, although I think they maybe would describe it that way, like to sort of have this instinct to be like, no, 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 like the right way to do it is blah. And, you know, not like I'm a parenting expert in the right way to do it, but like, that's the way I did it. And that's like the right way. You should get this book and you should do whatever. And when I wrote that book, it's sort of by the end, I was like, oh, actually, there's a lot of good ways to do this. And so I found myself really consciously pulling that back when people would ask me, even my friends, like, what should I do? I'd be like, well, you know, there's a lot of good choices. And it was an interesting change in how I sort of 
I mean, I still boss a lot of, uh, but mostly my family. <laughs> now I've tried to restrict my bossing to my brothers. Um, so that's because I know they won't listen to me. So it's fun. That's amazing. It's so true though. And I think that we get so stuck in this trying to prove our rightness that we don't take a step out of the situation sometimes. And I think that this is also really relevant and important with our selves and our decisions. So like one of the things that you had opened and and talked about was we take in, let's say expecting better, you know, and we know what the best situation is for us based on we maybe we're going to try combo feeding or maybe we're going to I don't know. We set the expectation. We set the ideal. We set the sort of goal or aim for ourselves. One of the things that I often find too with clients is they will die on that hill trying to make that thing happen. Mm. And even within our own empowered decision making and having weighed the pros and cons and having been intentional and values based, we still can find ourselves in the situation and say, yeah. I need to recalibrate here. Like, I'm not sure that this was the right decision for me. Mm-hmm. And I would liken that to needing some, like, flexibility in our thinking. But I don't know. Do you find that this comes up where, like, oh, I made the wrong decision and everything feels like it starts to crumble from there? Yeah. So I think part of this issue is there's a real tension, I think, in decision making between, like, once you've made a decision, needing some space to move on. Because we can't be remaking decisions all the time. So that's kind of one piece of this, which is like, once you've made the decision, like try to move on. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right that then stopping there leaves us in a situation where like, if that wasn't the right decision, we don't have a framework for changing our our mind, Yeah. right? If we do change our mind, it feels like we've failed. Yes. And so one of the things I tell people is in any of these decisions, you should plan to follow up. Mm -hmm. You should literally be like, at this time, you know, I'm going to have my baby. Here's my plan. I'm going to breastfeed. Okay. Make a date one month in Mm -hmm. to follow up on that decision and think about it again. And there's a little value there to sort of breaking the cognitive dissonance because what I don't want to do is have made a mistake. But if I plan to follow up, it wasn't that much of a mistake because well, I knew it was, it was more of like an experiment, Mm -hmm. like the frame of like the decision as experiment rather than the decision as like never to be revisited again. Yes. Can sometimes help us, you know, break a little bit of that, you know, like if I don't achieve this, I'm going to fail. And I think that actually, even more than with the little kid stuff, as you get into older kid parenting, and my kids are like 12 and eight now, there is a huge need to revisit a lot of our decisions because we make a lot of choices that sort of commit our kids just in terms of time to a lot of things. And then you get in a kind of a, I don't know if it's like a conveyor belt or a train of something where you feel like you can never get off Mm -hmm. of whatever is this thing that your kid is doing. And it's really, really valuable to sometimes like stop the train at the station and be like, hey, do we really need to be doing this? Mm -hmm. Everyone hates it. Huh, maybe we should do something different. And I think that that kind of revisiting can be very valuable. Mm -hmm. I think it's the difference between, okay, I'm looking at this and I feel 65%, you know, leaning in this direction. So we're going to go this way and we're going to reevaluate along the way versus I know that this is the right way with 100% certainty. And this is like the hard and fast rule. It's like subtle or maybe not so subtle difference in mindset where we're not setting rules. We're making decisions and decisions are fluid. The more data we gain, 
the more influence it has on our decisions and they grow and evolve over time. There's nothing I see more than really romanticized ideals of motherhood Mm -hmm. post baby being born that are Mm. trying to play out in the postpartum period that I'm convinced is, you know, in large part, a reason for some of our suffering. And it's not set in stone. Like once a decision is set, it's up for re-evaluation, not to be chewed on and ruminated on, like you said. We do need to like close the tab, you know? Yeah. But it's still not fixed. I think almost everyone has a story about something that they committed to after the baby was born with like this idea about what parenthood was going to be like. And then when it came to it, they were just like, what was I thinking? You know, like, I'm going to go to a wedding. Like when my baby is four weeks old, I'm going to this wedding. And I'm people ask me like, is that a good time for a wedding? I'm like, if we're a destination wedding, I'm just like, no, <laughs> like, it's, it's not. And they're like, I think I'll be fine by then. I'm like, maybe, but I d- wouldn't count on it. <laughs> and so I think it's just the the reality is different different, sometimes different in better ways, different and just, it's different. It's, it's just different than you think. And that's so funny because like, maybe that person is so spontaneous and adventurous in their values that they want to pack up and go with a newborn. I mean, yeah, you, I would still wait eight to 10 weeks because you don't know what your delivery is going to be like. You don't know. know, Let's say like a three month old, like, you know, you may or may not want to take a three month old to a destination wedding. Right. Or like maybe you really value order and structure and routine. And so depending on that person's values, again, like it's going to depend on what you need in the situation. And I mean, I can't wrap up this conversation without saying that there is like a gender gap here in decision making, because even when I look at the research around the invisible load that we carry and the invisible things that go on, they're broken out into like nine different dimensions. And of the dimensions, the one that men own is decision making and all other areas women own, you know. So I think that maybe even, and I sure used to do this earlier in my marriage, I would even like default to my partner because he's more like practiced in well-versed decision-making. Do you see that gap as well? Do you feel like that comes up? Anything to add to the gender gap conversation? Yeah, I think it comes up for two reasons. So one is I think because of the mental load stuff, actually a much larger share of these decisions in parenting do fall to moms. And so it's maybe not always the biggest decisions, but if you think about particularly in the first you know, year or two of life, there are just a cavalcade of decisions happening all the time. And those are very frequently borne by women. So there's a like a mental load aspect of decision-making, which is on women. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that I don't know how much is there's more training for men in this space, how much of it is you know, they're approaching this in a different way. How much of it is the sort of societal idea that like men are deciders and ladies are followers. And so we're sort of inherently, you know, somewhat looking, I guess, to men for decision making, which is not always great. I mean, they're good. It's good. It's good to do this with your partner, right? Like make decisions together. Collaboratively. Yeah. Collaborative decision making is good. And I think it's a good way to transfer some of that mental load. But I think where we get into problems is when like one person is effectively doing all the work and the other person is effectively like dictating some important decisions. I mean, this is not like CEO, COO. That is not the way your house should most of the time run. Mm -hmm. You kind of need a Mm co-CEO at the end of the day. 
Yeah, I remember that early on in carrying the load, I would do all the research about, I don't know, a pacifier. <laughs> like, it sounds like a silly yeah, example, no. but you'd be surprised. Listen, of- <laughs> man, you, you do not have to tell me. It's a, Please. You've heard it all at this point. <laughs> Week two, I'm on the computer looking up baby mittens, okay? So, like, don't don't come at me with your pacifier. That's, like, a real decision. <laughs> And I'm like, you know, done all the presentation or whatever. And like, I, I found that I would go to my partner having like sort of done all the research, you know, made my case, come up with the presentation, like have a conversation. Pacifier is like low stakes because it's not expensive. But let's say there was like more of an expense or something tied to it. And he'd be like, uh, I don't know, like I, w- we should look into other options. And I'm like, what the F do you think I've been doing for the past three weeks? Of course, I looked into other options. And it would feel like he'd come in with an ability to like, you know, trump or... I don't know, just exercise some form of power in those situations. And we were, we had fallen into very stereotypical gender roles in our home, which we've challenged a lot as, you know, I've expanded my knowledge in this area with the mental load and and all of that. But I think that that is true in a lot of cases where we feel like we do a lot of the invisible research in anticipation and prep and, you know, noticing and, and all of these things. And then with the higher stakes things, we bring them to our partner and maybe it doesn't feel collaborative sometimes because, we've done all the work and they maybe aren't informed in the same way. So collaboratively bringing them into that process where you're doing the researching together, right, opens up the door. I think there are so many ways to do that. And one of them is to do the research together, but I don't think that's necessarily required. Yeah. You could do it with a frame, right? To say, basically, we need to make this decision together. One of us is going to take on the job of like getting that information and coming, you know, to the table with the information we think we need. And then we're going to talk about it together. And maybe the other person's job is almost to be like, well, let me push back a little. Let me kind of play devil's advocate, which could work well if it doesn't feel like I did all this work. And now you're like, Meh, I don't really have time for this. I think no. Devaluing like the invisible research that went into that process. Yeah, exactly. The moment of just saying basically like, yeah, you did the work to figure this out. And like my job is to, you know, not poke holes in it, but to kind of like make sure that we're using this in the right way. I think that can work well. It's this piece where it's like you did all the work and I'm just like, wow, what is the value of that? You know, we're just going to do whatever I thought on Tuesday, which doesn't feel good. Just like question it and then be like, "Mm, we should go in this direction. It's like, pardon? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, this has all been so, so helpful and I think will resonate for so many. And I think that in the big decisions and in the little decisions, learning our values and to trust ourselves, consulting resources like yours to like not have to do the deep dive yourself, but having the summary of the data then to be able to like make an informed decision Any other little tidbits that you would leave listeners with on like where to start in like practicing or exercising this decision-making muscle? Any thoughts come to mind there? So I think you can start this at any time. There are enough decisions that come up that just stopping and saying, hey, like how could I be more deliberate about this? Mm. Maybe enough. The other thing I sometimes try to tell people is like if you look at your life as it is now, like your day-to-day you know, could you tell me one thing that's annoying, that bothers you? One thing, is it like getting out the door? Is it like what your kid eats for snack? Is it like, is there something that's coming up that's just like every day or every week is really grating on you? And is there an opportunity to sort of structure a decision around that? Like, how could we fix that? Mm. The frame of like, how could we sort of fix this? How could we use some deliberate thinking to try to fix this problem? Because that's one way into kind of deliberate decision-making, which then translates into, you know, using those tools, using those muscles all the time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think starting with like small, low stakes things to build some confidence and some traction to get yourself going is always a great place rather than like the highest stakes item that feels like so, you know, big in your values. Yeah. Don't start with like, where should your kid go to school? Right. Don't start with that. Start with like, what's an acceptable yeah. snack? What That's are we like- going to have for snack time? <laughs> exactly. Like, like you don't go into the gym and throw around 200 pounds. Like you like, you start small exactly. and you build. And yeah, and I think that starting small, and I would also set a timer or set a time frame on when the decision has to be made, as you said, within that framework, because it gives us some accountability to have to close that tab and move on. So thank you so much, Emily, for joining me for this conversation. And people can find your books anywhere, all over. Where can they find you online in your new platform that you launched? Parent Data, parentdata.org. Check it out. And we'll link that in the show notes so people can find you and follow along. Appreciate you being with us today. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that I got to sit down with Emily again. And if you've not picked up any of her books or subscribed to her newsletter or followed along with the information that she provides, I encourage you to subscribe, go pick up a book, check her out. She really eliminates a lot of the invisible load and the research and the overwhelm that comes with coming across all the conflicting opinions and advice. And she really serves up quality data in a way that is digestible and you can make decisions swiftly and with ease. One of the things I've noticed when working with clients in the postpartum period or even throughout pregnancy and trying to conceive is that postpartum anxiety and worry and fear can get involved in the decision-making process and make everything feel incredibly high stakes. When we've got anxiety to a degree that it feels hijacking and paralyzing, it can really interfere with our ability to make decisions and to make them with confidence because we feel so uncertain and feel so activated and so anxious about what the outcome might be. If you find that you're getting stuck in a pattern of feeling paralyzed and making decisions or overly thinking about becoming preoccupied with or ruminating over decisions that maybe don't deserve that much attention or information, but you still can't seem to shake them or they really interfere and haunt you. Or if you're just having a hard time making decisions, generally speaking, and it doesn't come with distress, I encourage you to book in a free 15-minute consultation with one of our mom therapists who can help you to learn the decision-making skills that potentially we weren't taught growing up. To learn if we've got a therapist that serves your area and to book a free 15-minute consultation, head to momwell.com. That's momwell.com. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where we're actually going to shake things up a little bit and welcome one of our Momwell community listeners, Stefania Thompson, to the show to talk about bereavement and grief after loss. Come back and join us same time, same place next week to hear about Stefania's story. I'll see you next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to momwell.com slash learning center. To join the Momwell email list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to momwell.com slash newsletter. Join me next week. Until then, remember that you have to be well to mom well. Settling is 
not an option for me. Everything I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.